stepped up to make one of the most famous speeches in history. At 57 years old, Nehru had grown into his role as India's leading statesman. His last prison term had finished exactly 26 months before. The fair skin and fine bone structure of an aristocratic Kashmiri Brahmin was rendered approachable by a ready smile and warm laugh. Dark, sleepy, soulful eyes belied a quick wit and quicker temper. In him were all the virtues of the ancient nation, filtered through the best aspects of the British Empire, confidence, sophistication, and charisma. Long years ago, he began, we made a tryst with destiny. And now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge, not wholly or in full measure, but substantially. At the stroke of the midnight hour, while the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. The clock struck, and in that instant he became the new country's first Prime Minister. The reverential mood in the hall was broken abruptly by an unexpected honk from the back. The dignitaries jerked their heads round to the source of the sound, and a look of relief passed over their faces as they saw a devout Hindu member of the assembly blowing into a conch shell, an invocation of the gods. Mildred Talbot, a journalist who was present, noticed that the interruption had not daunted the new Prime Minister. When I happened to spot Nehru just as he was turning away, he was trying to hide a smile by covering his mouth with his hand. It was the culmination of a lifetime struggle, and yet, as Nehru later confided to his sister, his mind had not been on the splendid words. A few hours before, he had received a telephone call from Lahore, in what was about to become West Pakistan. It was his mother's hometown, and a place where he had spent much of his childhood. Now it was being torn apart. Gangs of Muslims and Sikhs had clashed in the streets. The main Gurdwara, the Sikh temple, was ablaze. One hundred thousand people were trapped inside the city walls without water or medical assistance. Violence was a much-predicted consequence of the handover— but preparations for dealing with it had been catastrophically inadequate. The only help available in Lahore was from 200 Gurkhas, stationed nearby, under the command of an inexperienced British captain who was only twenty years old. They had little chance of stopping the carnage. The horror of that night in Lahore set the tone for weeks of bloodshed and destruction. Perhaps the Hindu astrologers had been right, when they had declared the 14th of August to be an inauspicious date. Or perhaps the Viceroy's curious decision to rush independence through ten months ahead of the British government's schedule was to blame. Emerging into the streets of Delhi, Nehru was greeted by the ringing of temple bells, the bangs and squeals of fireworks, and the happy shouting of crowds. Guns were fired, in celebration rather than in anger. An effigy of British imperialism was burned, in both. Soon afterwards, Nehru arrived at the Viceroy's house, a gated citadel at the end of Kingsway, New Delhi's two-mile processional avenue. He and Rajendra Prasad, the leader of the Constituent Assembly, were to see the last of the Viceroys, Earl Mountbatten of Burma. Mountbatten was young for a Viceroy at forty-seven, but no less assured for it. Tall, broad-shouldered and handsome, he had a brilliant Hollywood smile, easy wit and immediate charm. It might never have been guessed that he had been born a prince, were it not for his ability to switch to a regal demeanour. 
The new earl and his countess, Edwina, had kept an appropriate distance from the festivities. While freedom was declared, the couple had spent the night at home, pottering around their palace, and helping the servants tidy away anything marked with an imperial emblem. They had taken a brief break to watch the latest Bob Hope movie, My Favourite Brunette. It was a pastiche of the fashionable noir genre, the story of a wayward but irresistible baroness, played by the sultry Dorothy L'Amour, whose feminine wiles drag a number of men into a dangerous conspiracy. No more than a handful of those in the Viceroy's house that evening could have realised what a very apposite choice of film it was. While Nehru had been declaring his nation's independence and worrying about the emerging crisis in Lahore, Mountbatten had been sitting in his study alone, thinking to himself, as he later recollected that, for still a few minutes, I am the most powerful man on earth.